Good morning, Bethel. Last Sunday, I shared a slew of statistics about the incredible growth of social media in the last 10 years. We live in an age in which there is unprecedented technological opportunity for relationships. We are more informationally connected to each other than we ever have been before. Yet I suggested to you that we may actually be experiencing a widespread relationship famine in our day. So to address the topic of relationships, Tyler and I are preaching a sermon series from John 17, which is by far Jesus' longest prayer we have recorded in the Bible. In the Gospel of John, this prayer also contains Jesus' last words to his disciples before he is betrayed and crucified. So I would invite you this morning to turn with me to John 17, and I will again read verses 20 through 26. This can be found in the Pew Bible on page 903. John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, again we are thankful for this glimpse into your son's desires and intentions for us, the people whom he bought with his own blood. And as I prayed last week that these words would land on us with appropriate weight, today I pray that you would work these words into our hearts and transform our relationships with you and with each other. Oh God, I ask that you would make Bethel Baptist Church one so that our community and the world would know that we call upon a Savior sent by the Father. It's in the name of the Savior, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. 
Last week we focused on verses 24 through 26, and this week we will focus on verses 20 through 23. And in particular, Jesus' petition that his people might be one. Before we do that, however, I want to ask a question that could arise from placing verses 20 through 23 next to verses 24 through 26. If verses 24 through 26 are the climax of Jesus' prayer, as I believe they are, and if we are invited and folded into the divine knowledge, love, and glory enjoyed by the Father and Son within the Trinity, then do Christians have a real need for relationships with one another? What I mean is this. God is an infinite being, an inexhaustible fountain of perfect knowledge, the purest and most passionate love, and perpetual, radiant glory. If He, in mercy, chooses to embrace us, drawing us into a relationship with Himself, then what possible need could human relationships satisfy? In other words, here's the question I want to address before we consider John 17, 20 through 23. Should Christians be dependent on other Christians? Do other believers meet real relational needs for us? And if they do, is that simply a sign that our relationship with God is not as strong as it should be? At times, it does sound as if the Bible is telling us that our relationship with the Lord is the only relationship that matters. David writes in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David only asks for one thing, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Nothing else in comparison to that is worth asking for. Consider also the cry of Asaph in Psalm 73:25, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you." Again, there is nothing on earth to desire other than God himself. It seems as if Asaph's relationship with God is all satisfying. He doesn't need anyone else. As a final example, listen to the shocking words of Christ in Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here Jesus claims that to be his disciple, we must forsake all our most intimate earthly relationships. We leave them all behind in order to follow Jesus. So I ask, should Christians be dependent upon other people, even other Christians? It appears as if the Holy Scripture is saying, no, 
The only relationship you need is with the Lord. In fact, you must cut off your closest family relationships in order to be Jesus' disciple. This is not the full biblical answer to the question, though. It is definitely an important perspective on the value of human relationships, on the relative value of human relationships. But I think it needs to be balanced by another perspective that we find in Scripture. Many of you will know the creation account in Genesis 2. After creating the man and placing him in the Garden of Eden, Eden, the Lord God says what? It is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, have you ever paused to consider what God is saying here? What if Adam were to say, I'm not alone, God. I have you. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Why would I need a helper other than you? Perhaps I should just keep all my ribs. Thank you very much. For Adam to say that would be foolish and impudent, wouldn't it? How dare he question the wisdom of God? And yet the startling fact remains. God said that Adam was, in one sense, alone. And God said that being alone was not good. And God created a woman to bring to him. So what are we to make of all this? Was God not enough for Adam? Apparently not. As I understand it, this does not imply that God's relationship with Adam was somehow deficient or that God did not have the capability within himself to meet all of Adam's relational needs. But it does indicate that God, from the very beginning, chose to meet our need for relationships in part through other people whom he made. Human beings need the companionship of other human beings. And this is the way that God has designed it. Let me press this point with two more passages from the New Testament. First, recall 1 Corinthians 12, in which Paul presents the image of the church as a body. If you want, you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then, skipping a few verses, verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now listen to this. The eye cannot say to the hand... I have no need of you. The eye cannot say, 
I don't need you, hand. I have God. Nor again, the feet, head to the feet. I have no need of you. So if Bethel is your church, and if you have been saved and the Spirit dwells within you, then God has made you a member of this body, and you cannot say to any other Christian here, I have no need of you. And no other Christian here can say to you, I have no need of you. The reality is that we are all dependent upon each other, and God has designed it that way. We need each other, Bethel. One more passage also related to this imagery of the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, Paul writes this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We will grow and mature here at Bethel Baptist Church when we are held together and when each part is working properly. You cannot have gospel growth lasting gospel growth without gospel community. So if you have been saved, then you have been made a part of Christ's body. Your interconnectedness with other believers is not an option. It is inherent in your salvation. And if you have the desire to grow, then you need to be joined to the body here at Bethel and playing your part. We need each other. In some sense, we are dependent upon each other. That's the way that God has designed it. How then do we bring these two perspectives together? The you-don't-need-your-family perspective and the you-need-every-part-of-the-body perspective. How do they fit together? I have a friend called Joe Rigney who has helped me to think about this puzzle. And he speaks of two different but complementary biblical approaches to human relationships. One approach is what he calls the comparative approach. Sometimes the Bible sets our human relationships against our relationship with God and asks us to judge which is more valuable to us. And if we are called to compare, we must say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides God. The other approach, however, is the integrated approach. That is when we lean on other Christians and enjoy them as gifts of God. Why do you think that Paul is constantly thanking God for the Christians to whom he writes in his letters? It's because Paul viewed other members of the body as one of God's critical provisions for his relational needs. And the sweeter his fellowship with the saints, the more praise and thanks and glory went up to God. So to answer my original question, 
Should Christians be dependent upon other Christians? Do we really need each other? To answer this in comparative terms, we would say, no. Christians are dependent on God alone. Being folded into the triune knowledge and love and glory is all that I need. Or we might sing, I have no desires for another. In Him alone am I satisfied, as we just sang. And yet, we could also answer the question in integrated terms and say, yes, we are all dependent upon each other and ought to enjoy each other because this is the way that God has meant it to be. He has deliberately and purposefully arranged different members in one body. Or we could sing, let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. I hope this helps connect the dots from John 17, 24 through 26 to John 17, 20 through 23. Jesus does not only pray that individual believers would be connected to the effulgent Godhead, but also that believers would be connected to each other. Our relationship with God profoundly shapes the way we interact with other believers, but our relationship with God does not render relationships with other believers unnecessary. I believe that we desperately need to hear both halves of that truth in the relationship famine of our day. Otherwise, we will all become either leeches or hermit crabs. Let me explain. Leeches, as you know, attach themselves to a host by a powerful suction and then slice through the skin and begin to suck blood. Well, when we as Christians are not drawing life from God himself, we turn into leeches with other people. We try to extract from other people something that human relationships were never made to give us. It leaves us feeling bloated and unsatisfied, and it drains the other person as well. Bethel, let's not be leeches. If we want deep and nourishing relationships within this church, our first order of business is to pursue relationship with a triune God. Then after we are full of His grace and life, we won't need to suck from other people. And we will become a fountain of blessing to those around us instead of a drain upon them. However, without the balancing perspective of the need we have for other Christians, we will become hermit crabs. Hermit crabs may appear to be self-sufficient, and may even think that they are self-sufficient in their own little private and closed worlds. But the minute you come a little too close for comfort, they will either bury themselves in the sand or the claws will come out. If you talk to one, they may seem polite on the exterior, but the underlying message is, 
don't you come in here. This is my shell. Go find one of your own. Hermit crabs are those Christians who never enter into real relationships with others. Relationships in which they are honest and vulnerable and exposed. Hermit crabs are too busy, too scared, or too proud for such ventures outside of their own shells. So Bethel, we neither want to be leeches nor hermit crabs. And yet, the reality is that we are all too often both. So let's also be a church filled with love and grace toward leeches and hermit crabs. A church that gently but persistently points fellow leeches to the true source of life and nourishment. And a church that gently but persistently encourages fellow hermit crabs to come out of their shells and to enjoy human relationships without walls and claws. We need God in this church. And we need each other. Now finally, with that important foundation laid, let's turn again to John 17, 20 through 23. As you look at these verses, what is the central prayer request that Jesus mentions for his people? Verse 21, I ask that they may all be one. This intention repeated in verse 22 and again in verse 23. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for his people in these verses, toward the very climax of the prayer, he prays that they may be one. In what time remains this morning, we are going to examine this request that God's people may be one, just as Father and Son are one. What does this mean? And how is it accomplished? If you are following along with the sermon outline in your bulletin, you will notice that I have three thoughts on this oneness or unity for which Jesus prays. First of all, it is a oneness through faith. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is the twelve disciples minus Judas Iscariot, But also I ask for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. The people for whom Jesus prays are already united in a common faith. They all believe in Jesus. And so Jesus prays for their unity. Notice that Jesus' disciples come under two categories here. There are the 11 disciples... And then there are those who will believe in Jesus through their word. Sometimes the Christian faith is referred to as the apostolic faith. And this term helpfully captures the historical reality that the Christian faith has been passed down to us from those who are eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We have believed through their word. And thus we have another example of how God has designed that we are dependent 
upon other Christians. God planned that our faith may be dependent, in one sense at least, upon the apostolic word. Yet all of us, apostles or not, are one through faith in Christ. As John 10, 16 declares, there is one flock and one shepherd. And as John eleven fifty two tells us, the Jewish nation and those scattered abroad have been gathered into one by the death of this shepherd for his sheep. As the father and son share a common identity, so too do all who receive Christ, who believe in his name, who are given the right to become children of God. So we are one through faith. We share a common identity. We are also one in fruit. We share a common character. Now where do I see that? Verse 21. I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice that language of mutual indwelling. And consider a striking parallel in John 14, 10 through 11. Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So you hear that same language? How is it that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus? The verse continues, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what does it mean, in this context at least, that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father? Well, Jesus speaks the Father's words. And the Father does His works through Jesus. You can see, visibly, their mutual indwelling in the works that Jesus did. They are one in their work to make known the Father's glory. This would suggest that Jesus' disciples would likewise be one as they are united in doing the work of the Father. And how are disciples of Jesus in Jesus or in the Father, according to the Gospel of John? Jesus makes this plain as he's speaking to his disciples in John 15, 4 through 5, the verses you will know. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And verse 8 by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Can you hear the similarities between these verses in John 15 
and then John 14, 10 through 11, and then John 17, 21. In each case, mutual indwelling produces the fruit of works. So when Jesus prays that believers may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, I think we are meant to understand that Jesus prays for us to be one in works or one in fruit. And this is fruit that is born by believing and abiding in Jesus. If you were to push me further by asking, what fruit in particular might Jesus have in mind? I would offer two suggestions from the context. We are to be united in the fruit of love and the fruit of holiness. The fruit of love is all over John 15, if you read that chapter. And Jesus also asserts in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays that his people may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the love between believers, which Jesus emphasized so strongly and that we heard this morning in 1 John, is a means by which the world may believe in Jesus. The fruit of holiness is suggested to me by John 17, 11 through 12. The only other place in which Jesus mentions the oneness of his disciples. You can turn there. John 17, 11 through 12. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I don't have time to develop this argument, but I think Jesus keeping his disciples in the name of the Father is his spiritual protection of their purity or holiness despite the alluring corruption of the world, a corruption that eventually defiled Judas Iscariot, the son of destruction. So I would argue that in John 17, 11, Jesus is pr praying for his disciples to be one, to be united in the fruit of holiness. So, one through faith... One in fruit, and my last thought, one in following. A following of Jesus on the road to Calvary. Please observe verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now this for me, was a very difficult 
verse to understand, and I'm not sure that I've, I've got it right. The tricky question is, what is the glory mentioned in this verse that the Father has given to Jesus and Jesus has given to the disciples? Oh man, I, I wrestled with that question for a long time. Toward the start of this prayer, Jesus asks the Father to glorify him with the glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world existed. He also prays at the end of the prayer that the disciples would see this glory when they are with him where he is. I don't think this heavenly glory described at the beginning and end of the prayer could be the glory that Jesus is referencing in verse 22 because the heavenly glory is clearly a future glory. Whereas in verse 22 it says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. It's a glory in the past. And yet in this prayer, we have already heard that Jesus refers to his death in past terms as if it were already accomplished. He says, I am no longer in this world, even as he prays this prayer with his disciples. So Jesus is viewing his imminent death as if it has already happened. Therefore, I am inclined to think that the glory of verse 22 is the glory Jesus describes in John 12, 23 through 28. So listen to to this passage. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, so Jesus is going to be glorified. And how? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So in this passage, Jesus is clearly talking about his own death and how it will be his glory because it will bear much fruit. Jesus describes it as the purpose for which he has come to this hour. Now I simply ask, was this the purpose of the Son alone? Was it not also the purpose of the Father who sent him? So if God sent his Son into the world in order to be glorified in a death that would bring life to others, then can we not describe Jesus' path to Calvary as a glory which the Father has given to him? Ironic though it may be. And can we not also naturally describe the path, our path to glory, uh, to Calvary, as a glory that Jesus has given to his disciples? As Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He must follow me to the cross. If you want to serve Jesus, you must follow him to death. Sometimes to martyrdom, but always to a death to self that others might live. For these reasons, when I read John 17, 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I just wonder if Jesus is praying that believers might be united in an ironically glorious call to die. A call to follow Jesus into and out of death. So that through our suffering, the world may know Jesus. So, Jesus is praying that we might be one through faith. We share in a common identity. One in fruit. We have a common character of love and holiness. And one in following. We have a common mission, which Tyler will talk about more next week. I need to bring this sermon to a close but I wish I had more time to talk about the ecumenical impulse in these verses, a section you may have noticed in the bulletin insert. Suffice it to say that liberal and Roman Catholic Christians should not be the only ones with a heart for the unity of the worldwide church. I think it would be a mistake for us here at Bethel to... surround ourselves with Christians who are increasingly and narrowly like us, as if the key to oneness is in marking out ever-shrinking circles in the sand. There is beauty and great glory to God in standing together with genuine Christians of all stripes and persuasions, not by minimizing the importance of doctrine, but by loving across doctrinal boundaries. There's a lot to say about that, but perhaps that will be for another sermon at another time. Let me conclude with three brief words of application. If Jesus prays for our oneness, and it is clearly of concern to him, then how might we at Bethel strive to maintain our unity in Christ? My first exhortation is to focus on God. And this brings me back to my sermon last Sunday and my point about leeches. Bethel, if we want substantial and sweet relationships within this church, let us first focus on pursuing God. Because as we cultivate our relationship with the triune God, He will grow us together. I cannot say it any better than A.W. Tozer has said it in his book, The Pursuit of God. Quote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, 
but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Close quote. And amen to that. Let's not be unity conscious to the exclusion of being God conscious. When our hearts are tuned to Him, we will automatically be in tune with each other. Second, recognize the importance of the body. I believe that Pastor Chris is soon going to preach a sermon series on the church. So I don't feel any pressure to say everything now. I would simply remind you of the danger of being a hermit crab and the importance God himself places on community by saving us into one body and growing us in that body. Our love for one another and our unity here at Bethel is no small matter. Jesus died to make it possible. And he means to be glorified in our relationships with one another. No one is too spiritual for the church. We need each other. Third, Rally around a common cause. I wish I had more time to expand on this point as well. Let me just say that the word commonly translated fellowship in the New Testament can also be translated partnership and often is better understood that way. Our church does need times just to hang out and chat and get to know each other. But let's not limit our vision of fellowship to that. True gospel fellowship or partnership is the kind of relationship you gain with a person when you are in the trenches with them, fighting the good fight of faith. When James and Peter and John extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul, They were not saying, great, let's fire up the grills and get on our kosher barbecue. (laughs) No, they were saying, we'll concentrate on the Jews, you concentrate on the Gentiles, let's get on with our work. Work together in the mission the Lord has given to each of us. That's the kind of mentality and fellowship that will really deepen and sweeten our relationships here at Bethel. And may it be so. Let's pray. Father, we are not wiser than you are. And you have created us to be a part of this body. You have knit us together and we have great need of each other.
God. And our dream, God, is that we might be a church that is united in faith, is united in love and holiness, a church that serves each other, and as Jay prayed, a church that invests in each other's lives. And Father, a church that rejoices together and that weeps and mourns together, church that rallies around each other. And Father, I just rem- remember again uh, the Hollister family, Christina in particular. God, we just pray that you'd have mercy upon that little baby, that you would make it healthy and keep it safe. And Father, would you be glorified in our relationships And would you take our church just to another level of intimacy and of joy in each other. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.